0: I opened a box, and inside was this beautiful leather-bound volume, and it had these bronze Celtic clasps. I opened this book, and you know, at the front it says, Prayers of Evelyn Underhill, and I realized this is the prayer book that all these scholars I've been reading have said it was lost decades ago. And here it is sitting here, you know, how does this happen?
1: Welcome to the Renovare podcast. A place for honest and unhurried conversations about interactive life with God. I'm Nathan Foster, and our guest today is Evelyn Underhill Scholar, author, and senior lecturer at Alpha Christus College in Sydney, Australia, Dr. Robin Wrigley Carr. Today's episode is the story of unearthing and bringing to life an important contribution to the contemplative stream. It's the story of a passionate scholar following the breadcrumbs to recover a seemingly lost treasure that a number of us at Renovare have come to love, Evelyn Underhill's prayer book. I had a delightful conversation with Robin from her home in Sydney, Australia. Robin, there's an Australian saying that I wondered if you could help me with. And I think I know what it means, but I can never quite explain it to people. And it's um, something like, we like to keep the poppies low.
0: It's cutting down the tall poppies, yeah. So we we don't, yeah, it's about uh, not really liking arrogance too much. And so those people who want to try to be the cut above everyone else and look down at everyone else, we cut them down. So cut them
1: down, yes. Cut
0: down the tall poppies, yeah.
1: Yes. This was uh, said to me when I was at a, a dinner with people I didn't know and people were making fun of me and, and I thought, what is going on? And they said, we just like to keep the poppies low. Yeah, yeah. Okay, there we go. <laughs> I found it endearing. I don't think they thought I was being too much, but I think they oh, enjoyed making yeah. fun of me.
0: <laughs> well, I think uh, there's a certain playfulness in the Australian way, not wanting to take ourselves too seriously, and yes. there is a there is a camaraderie and a sense of mateship and being together. Um, but yeah, there's a there's a certain playful banter bags people out. That's what we say. (laughs) They're bagging you out. It it kind of means they're, they're kind of playing with you so that you don't take yourself too seriously.
1: (laughs) Yes. Okay. So I have another situation I need your help with Evelyn. 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 Evelyn.
0: I, I say that because a wonderful old lady Uh, In London that I often stay with and I've known for about 30 years, her mother lived at the same time and she was Evelyn. So I say it's Evelyn.
1: Yeah. She would have gone by Evelyn.
0: Yeah. In that era in London, sure. She'd be Evelyn.
1: Yes. Okay. Can you give us a picture, a synopsis of who uh, Evelyn Underhill was? Yeah, sure. Sure
0: born in 1875 and died in 1941, a married lay laywoman, uh, didn't have kids for whatever reason, but was a cat lover, had lots of cats. A really brilliant woman. So we're talking very intellectually gifted. Uh, so, you know, she's the first woman to lecture in theology at Oxford University, 1921, and she's made a fellow of King's College London. She gets an honorary doctorate of divinity from the University of Aberdeen. But more importantly than her 39 books and hundreds of articles and reviews is she really modernised a lot of the early mystical writings. Uh, So she translated things into English. She brought into vogue a whole lot of um, the early writers in Christian mysticism. But interestingly enough, it wasn't really until the early 1920s that she experienced Christ. So she sort of had this, uh, you know, this aura and people wanted to go to her and she was a big name in in Christian spirituality. But she says she didn't really experience or encounter Christ until the early 1920s. And she says somehow by his prayers or something, Von Hugel, her spiritual director, um Enabled me to encounter Christ. And she says it was like watching the sun rise very slowly. And then suddenly I knew what it was. And suddenly the New Testament, which I'd never really been able to make sense of, became alive. And the Eucharist, you know, taking communion, came alive. And thereafter, she stops writing about the mystics and mysticism and starts talking about the spiritual life and her writings become a lot more Christocentric. So a really intriguing woman ahead of her time, she's leading Anglican priests in the UK on retreat in 1925. And those retreat talks got published as a a book called Concerning the Inner Life, and then a whole lot of different branches of the church are asking her to lead their ministers or their priests on retreat. And her last bunch of published works are all her retreat talks. And I think it's it's her retreat talks that I absolutely resonate with. And she often had a theme. So, you know, there was one ret- set of retreat talks called Light of Christ. There's one called Abba, which is all about the Lord's Prayer. There's one, Fruits of the Spirit. Um, so she has this main theme and then she organises these beautiful retreat talks. And her letters are amazing. So there's two volumes of her uh, letters have been published, and uh, you know she was spiritual director who had a huge impact on on loads of people. So, I mean, she's a really fascinating woman. She's also really um, artistically gifted. So, she uses language beautifully, and I think that's one thing that really resonates with me. So, she was a poet. She published a, a couple of volumes of poetry. She wrote three novels. I mean, all of that work was done early before her conversion, if you like. Another thing I'll say about her that I find really intriguing but also very, um, uh, it just inspires me, is I would call her a spiritual ecumenist. So she grew up without religion and then, you know, she's confirmed as an Anglican at boarding school. Then she's she can't find a church to, to um to join, you know, for a while she thought she might become a Catholic and then a fiancé didn't want that to happen. We had the Catholic modernist crisis and she didn't like the Catholic church. You know, she, she sort of can't find a church home for a long time. And then eventually sort of into the, you know, early 1920s, she decides to become an Anglican and sort of found a place she could fit into in this retreat leading at this retreat house at Pleshy, uh north of London. But... Thereafter, she's really passionate about Christianity in all the different branches of the church. So she's still attending Catholic churches and Orthodox churches as well as Anglican churches. And she's friends with all these people and she's wanting to bring about church unity. So even, you know, in World War II and even in the 1920s early on, she's part of these prayer movements for church unity. And she's passionate about it. You know, even on her deathbed, she's praying for church unity. And this whole idea, you know, Jesus' words that they may be one, you know, it's something that she's passionate about. She says, I'm friends with Christians of all brands, except when they start hating each other. And I love that. (laughs) It's kind of she didn't want her influence to be made smaller by just aligning herself with one branch of the church. And you've got to remember, you know, 100 years ago, what what branch of the church you're in was a big deal, right? Um, whereas these days, you know, it's a lot more fluid. The rise of secularism—if people are churching at all, it's a big deal, right? So, so yeah, really fascinating woman. And and on top of that, I haven't kind of said she's spunky. She's she's funny. She's witty. In her personal journal, she talks quite openly about her struggles and. I find that really inspiring and refreshing as well. It's not like she finds everything easy. Uh, She often says she's able to talk about things or teach concepts earlier than she can live them. So, yeah, just a really intriguing woman. And I've really enjoyed getting to know her the last few
1: years. Tell me a, a little bit about her prayer book prior to your visit at the retreat house.
0: Yeah, so in the 1920s and 30s, Evelyn was leading retreats in a few different retreat houses, but primarily in this one retreat house in a little thatched roof cottage town um, called Pleshy, which is near Chelmsford, which is north of London. And the scholars who write about her... Uh, they say that she had one book of prayers that she would take when she was leading retreats. So she starts retreat leading in 1924, and you can imagine, you know, she's never led retreats before. So she starts collecting prayers that she can read when she's leading public worship on her retreats. And she collects prayers from all branches of the church, Protestant, Anglican, Orthodox, And she gets some of the big names, big spiritual gurus throughout church history, going from the 4th century to the 20th century. And these prayers she wrote into this um, prayer book. And, in fact, we find that there were two volumes uh, that she used over the years. Now, when I started researching Evelyn, this is back in 2016, I went on a retreat, a research trip, sorry, to The UK, and I was looking at Echoes of Von Hugel, the guy I did my PhD on in the writings of Evelyn Underhill. So I end up going to these, you know, posh university archives and I spend time looking at letters and resources. I'd been at University of St Andrews. I was at Cambridge next. And it was while I was at Cambridge, it suddenly came upon me really strongly why don't you go to the retreat house where she led retreats? I knew that um, there might be resources there. I wasn't sure. So I suddenly, you know, as a complete afterthought, turned up at the retreat house and I was going through boxes of archival materials and it was in the late afternoon that I opened a box and inside was this beautiful leather-bound volume and it had these bronze Celtic clasps, and I thought it was locked, but no, I could open it. And I open this book, and you know, at the front it says in a handwriting that I know is not Evelyn's Prayers of Evelyn Underhill. And I'm looking at the beautiful calligraphy, red headings, and I realize this is the prayer book. This is the prayer book that all these scholars I've been reading have said it was lost decades ago. And here it is sitting here, you know, how does this happen, sort of thing and so i'm just so excited and i'm like well i've got to, i've got to get these prayers and write them out because they're they're beautiful prayers and charles williams tells us that evelyn had these prayers on probation so she would find a prayer from her research and then she would spend time praying it and if it resonated enough it made it into the prayer book so you know this is years of finding these beautiful prayers so i basically cancelled the week of research I was going to do at King's College London at the official Evelyn Underhill ar- archive and I started writing out these prayers and what was incredible was that I can still remember vividly I was sitting in the in the library and I was looking out the window at the dove cops and I'm writing out these prayers which are often pretty horrible handwriting that you're trying to decipher and I suddenly looked up And there above me was this arc of around nine women in kind of old-fashioned clothing and they're all clapping and laughing and they're looking down at me and they're clapping and then they're looking at each other and they're laughing and clapping and smiling and looking down at me. And I'm just kind of like, what is this? And then I remember just looking down and across the room to the left, and I just murmured out aloud, but I'm just little. I'm just little. And it was this sense of being completely overwhelmed that this beautiful book of prayers was here and was just sitting there. It had been set up by God for me to walk in the door and copy out these prayers, and it was It was so vivid, this sense of the cloud of witnesses. That's what came to me. It was like the cloud of witnesses that we read about in Hebrews 12. If you remember, there's this sense of, you know, all these different people who lived by faith. And then we have this cloud of witnesses that are cheering us on as we we run the race. And I, you know, I don't have visions often. This was just so moving, but... Um, this sense of these funny old ladies who perhaps have been waiting for someone to find this thing <laughs> that had been sitting here. Scholars <laughs> thought it was lost. Yeah, and what was extraordinary was with the prayer book was this letter written by a Canadian-born priest. He basically said, you know, years ago I found this prayer book in an Oxfam shop. This is like a charity shop in the U.K., And I was using it for my private devotions. And then I've been cleaning up and I decided to send it to the House of Retreat. So this had arrived in the post in 2004. And the warden at the time had (laughs) said, we can't believe what came in the post. We'll have to do something with it. And apparently it got put in a suitcase for safekeeping where it lay forgotten. And I had just walked in the door in April 2016 after a new manager had put things from the attic into, you know, boxes and kind of organized a little bit. So it was just the most incredible timing. But I think what struck me so much was this sense of this work of writing out these prayers has been set up. And there's this concept that uh, Evelyn's spiritual director, Von Hugel talks about, which is the provenience of God. And it's this idea of God as the initiator who sets up good work for us to do. So it's not like I just think, "Oh, what will I do for God?" He come he comes and he initiates good work for us to enter into. And we just turn up, and it's all laid out on the table for us to participate in his work. And I think it was the most profound time of me realizing This work had been set up. He was this sense of God, the initiator. and I could look back on 20 years of when I had first read a a book by Evelyn Underhill that I'd found in a secondhand bookstore 20 years earlier, how I'd been given this crazy scholarship to do my PhD on Von Hugel, who was the spiritual director of Evelyn, the most significant one, and I'd immersed myself in all of his letters and his devotional writings, how I'd actually learnt how to decipher Evelyn's handwriting through, you know, in my PhD I'd been at the archive where there were letters that she'd written so I knew, you know, that she had five different ways of doing the letter E. You know, just all these little details that came together where you say this is exactly the work I'm meant to be doing at this particular point of time. But I suppose still what was so moving was just this very deep sense of being humbled so it's one thing to have work that's laid out for you and it's one thing to have a vision that's so moving but it's another thing to have the effect of the vision and as I look back it's not so much the vision that I remember it's it's the very 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 deep sense of I'm just little just feeling so small because you've just encountered the eternal, which is so huge and so big and so mind-blowing and so other. So I suppose, you know, just to participate in this story was incredible, but it doesn't finish here. So I went back to Australia with a draft of sorts, having worked like crazy for a week getting this draft down, and I had some scans of the original. I'm trying to still decipher the handwriting. I went back six weeks later because I um, needed to look at the original, and of course the retreat house didn't want me to take the original book home, which is fair enough. And to my complete amazement, another volume of the prayer book had turned up. So it had been out with someone from the diocese who didn't realise what it was, And then I looked at that copy and it had exactly the same red calligraphy headings, the same indexes, and the handwriting, thankfully, was much neater because it was the earlier volume that would have been 1924 to 1928. So I quickly copied that out as well. And then I could see repetitions, so I got rid of the repetitions. I modernised the language because I thought these and thous just means you've got a much – smaller number of people that can benefit from the prayers and I put it all together asked the Bishop of Chelmsford Stephen Cottrell who is now the Archbishop of York can I get this thing published and he's like absolutely this is fantastic and it was published in January 2018 by SBCK so I mean the whole thing was just an amazing journey and The prayers are beautiful. So even as I was copying out these prayers, I was just in this gorgeous state of worship because so many of them are very, very heartfelt prayers. You can see that the fact that she had them on probation uh, (laughs) means that she chose really, really good ones, and they're from, as I said, 4th to 20th century as well as her own prayers. That are very poetic and very heartfelt as well.
1: I'm here in joy. Yeah. Is this is a joyful process for you. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And and kind of a little bit being on a spiritual high where you just kind of, wow, this is this is not happening. This is this is so much fun. This is great. This is yeah, just Thanksgiving and
1: wow. She does something, I almost want to say bold, but taking a prayer from, you know, some great saint from the fifth century or something and adding her own lines, right? Like making her own contribution to it. I found that really special.
0: Yeah. And I think we need to remember the audience for this prayer book. It's, it's retreatants on, on retreat. So you can imagine that she's chosen, you know, a quote from Augustine or... Whoever, and then she's writing her little prayer under it because she's going to lead the people in retreat, um, in worship, and this is a working document where you can see sometimes she's she's given three different options for a particular word so that it'll fit in with a particular retreat. So there was one retreat, uh, fruits of the spirit, where you can see that she. You know, she gets rid of a word and puts peace, or adds patience. And you know, I, I sort of say, well, I, I bet those changes were made when she was leading that retreat. There's a sense in which, too, as you look at the prayers that are at the beginning of the first prayer book, which I I should say too is is beautiful in in terms of um, its form as well. So it was a hand bound book with Beautiful floral cover and a and a you know a lovely little light blue ribbon and those sort of details are important too because she loved beauty so she loved the beauty of language and and she loved aesthetics and thankfully SBCK you know they tried to get a cover that echoed some of that first prayer book and they got this you know lovely. I think it's a, a wallpaper print from the V&A or a furnishing fabric. So there's this Edwardian vibe. She's leading the people on retreat. That's the audience. And towards the second prayer book, there are a lot more of her prayers as well. And she's even writing some of these during World War II where she's praying for the children that have been evacuated uh, she's praying for those people who are dying. I mean, some of those prayers I was just looking at yesterday, I thought they're so um, – they, they have a deep resonance for the people of Ukraine at the moment because they're talking about people who are suffering and who are alone and who are weeping and there are prayers for the dead. But, you know, there's there's a contextualization of some of these prayers in the midst of World War II. Uh, and some of these prayers for people who are dying, I remember – when my own mum was dying, she had advanced dementia, so she couldn't understand these prayers herself, but they were so important to my dad. They've been so important to chaplains uh, who are working with people who are dying. Uh, so there's a, real, there's a real mix of different types of prayers, but they're, they're beautiful. They're deeply moving.
1: Could you speculate what you think Evelyn might want people to do with this book?
0: Uh, I think she'd say, "Don't read it, but pray it." <laughs> it's very easy; like it's a lot easier to talk about prayer than to pray. It's a lot easier to uh, skim read things quickly because it's what we do with the news on our phone. We just kind of we become greedy for knowledge and new ideas but actually earthing these things into ourselves is much harder and taking something small and chewing on it in the in the way that we do when we do lectio divina it asks more of us but there's so much more to be gained there's so much it's so much more fruitful for our uh, spiritual journeys and our spiritual lives so i think she'd want us to be praying the prayers not reading them and she was really aware of the importance of the spoken word. So there was this sense that to pray things out aloud has uh, more influence on us. And I think she'd want us to take some of those prayers and pray them slowly out aloud so that more of our body is involved. We're, we're hearing, we're seeing, have a posture of prayer and and really just deeply pray them with all of who we are rather than just quickly skim them for information. That's my guess. And also to, to pray them in community. Because she had not been part of a worshipping community for a long time, really until her, her middle years, she was um, often saying to people, you know, just being alone in the prayer cell is actually not where the action is. Prayer is done in community. It's our Father. And so she would want us to be praying these prayers in community, even if it's two people. Uh, So the importance of praying communities and being together in prayer. And that prayer community is partly what she leads us into because she's giving us the prayers of the historic figures in the church. So suddenly she's reminding us that the church is so much bigger than the people that we can see when we go to church in the 21st century. It's the historic church. It's all Christians, and they are our brothers and sisters. And a lot of these historic, beautiful prayer warriors were uh, more deeply prayerful than any of us moderns, and they can teach us about a humble posture, and they lead us into adoration of God. Uh, she used to talk about uh, trying to help retreatants go beyond supernatural supernatural shopping lists, she used to call them, into, into worship, into adoration. And so a lot of these prayers, they're, They're like the Psalms that take us from lament into, and you are God. And, uh, she always, uh, she always wanted adoration of God to be what our prayer is about rather than being self-focused with petition. So a lot of these prayers, they take us into worship. They take us into adoration of God. Uh, but it's not like they don't have, voice for lament as well. There's plenty of that in there and a voice for our suffering and our pain. Um, but, yeah, there's, there's a lot of really moving prayers. So she writes, Let our lives run to your embrace and breathe the breath of eternity. O God supreme, most secret and most present, most beautiful and strong, constant yet incomprehensible, changeless yet changing all. What can I say, my God, my life, my holy joy? You are the only reality. That's just kind of like beautiful. You know, I want to breathe the breath of eternity and run to your embrace. So I just find a lot of these prayers, they take me to a, a new place of worship and they point me to God. They they help me lift my eyes up.
1: One of the things I found kind of exciting is, you know, a number of these um, people's prayers that she quotes. I knew the names, but there's a bunch of them I don't. And so I thought, and then you give a little uh, description of each person at, at the end. I thought, ooh. New friends to explore. Yeah, yeah.
0: (laughs) Plenty of new friends. And she she utilizes poets as well. So uh, Christina Rossetti, there's a couple of different poets that she's drawing upon, her friend Margaret Cropper, who also just expresses herself beautifully. But she also draws upon some theologians and clerics who wrote theological treatises but were also quite poetic in their language. And I think it's this poetic language that is gorgeous as well, and eyes that are very alert to the beauty of creation as well. You can tell that she was the type that loved garden, loved trees, loved birds, all of, all of the finding God in the beauty of creation. That sort of resonates and comes through in some of her own prayers as well. Do you keep a prayer book? Well, I have, I have over the years. Um, I do journaling. That's where I write when I'm trying to make sense of things. The, the journaling is the, um, writing prayers to God. I mean, I don't show it to anyone. It's just a, a private thing. And I, I actually kept, I kept a diary from the age of 12 till about 30. And I, um, that was a mix of what happened that day and then, more and more became my prayers, and I've got all these. I've got them in a box and never look at them.
1: <laughs> I just love the idea. I, okay, I've been collecting prayers for years, my own and others, and just and I love the idea of like curating your own, you know, and putting them on probation, and yeah, but then to yeah. have a collection of that. They just all mean something to you, right? And it, it's a, a place to turn to. Just I love the idea of doing that.
0: But also she's thinking in terms of themes for her retreats. So at the back of both of these prayer books, she had an index. And it's a working copy again because it's different coloured fountain pens and, you know, scratchings out and all the rest. And so in the published version, I combined the two indexes. And it means, for example, if you're leading a retreat around the theme of light, light and darkness, you know you can see where she has some some prayers related to that. Um, so it's interesting even to think to look at what she had in her index and what are some of the the key themes so suffering or faith, gaze of Christ on us, generosity, glory, glory of Christ, God's love, God's will, long suffering, love. She also draws upon some prayers I couldn't find the references for, as well as liturgies that are, some of them are really ancient. Uh, so in the back of the book, just as I've written about the different authors of the prayers, I've written about the different liturgies and some of them are, you know, some of the oldest liturgy known in the Western mystical tradition. And so some of those rich liturgies are amazing for us to be exposed to as well in different branches of the church. What has been fun in this whole journey is having immersed myself in her spiritual director first. So generally people who come to Evelyn Underhill's work, uh, they've done their doctorate on her and they've immersed themselves in her and then they've kind of known about the Baron von Hugel. Oh, yeah, that was, that was the person that she said, I owe my whole spiritual life to him. And he's kind of like an appendage. And the really, the really fun thing about this journey is having immersed myself in the Baron first and then reading her through him means that I see, I do see those echoes and those resonances, uh, because all of us are so deeply influenced by the people that have, you know, fed into us who have, earthed us, who have encouraged us, who have mentored us, who have loved us. And for me, one of those important people was Eugene Peterson, and he was the one who uh, encouraged me to do my doctorate on Von Hügel. I asked for three names. I said, you know, give me three names of people who have really impacted you in terms of spiritual formation and who wrote letters, you know, friends from the cemetery, as you say. (laughs) <laughs> and Von Hugel was the first name he gave me. So I I went and checked him out and I thought, right, I'll do my doctorate on him. And little did I know that from immersing myself in him and his spiritual direction, I would then, you know, get right into one of his key spiritual directees, one of his, you know, key, key women that he really influenced and nurtured and loved. So that's fun in and of itself.
1: The journey, and then I love it that here you get to help bring this back to the world.
0: I'll I'll just say one other quick thing. Please. I would be hopeless to ever be working in business. Like I do not think about money at all. But what is crazy is that when I had that vision and that I'm only little experience, it came upon me straight after that. And all the royalties from this book, if it can get published, need to go to Pleshy because they are doing a renovation. The retreat house. Yeah, they're, they're, they're doing a renovation so that there's disabled access. They're doing the lift, they're, you know, all this sort of stuff. Now, I never think about money. That's just not who I am. I'm hopeless at this stuff. But one of the fun things is that this book and Evelyn's Beautiful Prayers those little dribbles of um, royalties are going to the retreat house. And that makes me happy. Evelyn loved that retreat house. She just loved it, my beloved Pleshy. And it's so wonderful to know that, you know, the book's helping pay pay for bricks. And I would encourage you, Nathan, next time you're in the UK, have a retreat there. It's a wonderful, wonderful place.
1: All right, you encourage me because this is a great gift book. Right, yeah. to gift to people. And um, what a cool cause. And what a cool work. Robin, thank you so much.
0: Oh, it's been so much fun talking to you, now. Thanks.
1: And that was Robin wrigley Carr talking about Evelyn Underhill's prayer book. Robin has written two other books about Evelyn, The Spiritual Formation of Evelyn Underhill and Music of Eternity. Meditations for Advent with Evelyn Underhill, which was the Archbishop of York's Advent book for 2021. I'm Nathan Foster and you've been listening to the Renovare Podcast. We're grateful for all of you who helped make this work possible. You can support Renovare and this podcast with a tax deductible gift at renovare.org donate. Renovare is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort offering resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. You can find a collection of thoughtfully curated articles, podcasts, webinars, online classes, as well as information on events in our institute at our website, renovare.org. This podcast is produced by Brian Moricon, who also wrote the opening song titled Be Kind. Until next time. Be well, friends. Be well.